You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. One of the books that I read this last month was a smaller book by a guy named Mark Sayers, and the title is called A Non-Anxious Presence, A Non-Anxious Presence. Uh, The subtitle tells you really what the book is about. The subtitle says, "How How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders. How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders. How many of you would say, especially over the last four to six years, and especially since the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, it has felt like an increasingly complex and changing world? Any of you just honestly say, yes, the last three or four to five years have felt crazy have felt insane. This is what Sayers is getting at in his book, which was written um, post that. It just came out um, late spring. He, he says this in here, and I hope it will resonate to you. Obviously, the book is written toward Christian leaders, but I think the vast majority of it is applicable to all of us. It speaks to why we're looking at the book of Exodus this morning and what we expect God to do in and through the book of Exodus in our lives. Sayers writes that uh, following the, the COVID pandemic, a growing sense of anxiety accompanied the rising challenges felt by leaders. I would just say felt by most of us. The emotional landscape of congregations and Christian organizations was growing more chaotic and unhealthier. Leaders found themselves stuck in a no man's land of congregation, congregational and cultural conflict. Many of us felt the same way, leader or not. You felt like, I, I am stuck in a no man's land of church change and culture change, and I'm not sure what's going on or where it's headed. Many looked for support, but instead found themselves surrounded by anxious friends, spouses, staff members, and the marvelous mirages of successful ministry found on social media. Anxiety naturally crept in. Things got worse as heroes of the faith fell. We've seen that over and over over the last several years. Well-known churches, previously viewed as gold standard models of ministry, became messes. Great Christian institutions bled legitimacy. Understandably, many Christian leaders began eyeing the exit. We had entered a gray zone, a gray zone. I want you to hold on to that phrase. It is a chaotic, confusing, anxious, and complex place filled with change. It is the space... The space between a passing era ending and a new era forming. This is what many of us are feeling today, is the anxiety around the complexity and the change, both amount and in speed, of the ending and the passing of one era namely the 20th century and all that was built in almost all of our institutions in the United States were were built in and modeled around, including most local churches that are over 20 or 30 years old, built around a mid-century, mid-20th century model. One error giving way to a new era coming, but one hasn't fully given way yet and one hasn't fully come yet. And So we're in a gray zone where they overlap and it feels chaotic and there's systematic anxiety that we feel and pressure and depression and uncertainty. Now, history is filled with these gray zones where one period of time overlapses another one. We're going to see in the book of Exodus that the wilderness was a gray zone time for our ancestors, for the people of God, as one era was passing and a new era was beginning. And even though they were under the direct leadership of God, through Moses and Aaron and Miriam, it was filled with anxiety. Now, as we turn to the book of Exodus this morning, we're going to cover chapters one through four. I will not do them verse by verse so you can relax, though heaven knows I want to but I'm still trying to get out of Luke teaching it that way. 
So, you know, we come back to Luke for blocks. I can't uh, jump into Exodus and do the same thing or we'll spend the next three years just finishing Luke and Exodus. But we will read a lot of scripture uh, this morning and in some coming weeks. And I just wanna say a word about that. Um, As we read chunks of scripture and sometimes an entire chapter and make connections, it's very important that we open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit so that he might help reveal and remind us of the the full story, the narrative of scripture, the redemptive story that's going on there. Because it is not just the story of the Bible, it's the story of your life and my life. This redemptive narrative arc in which God is at work, God is the hero, God is the major player seeking to redeem and renew and restore his people. And most of us don't know the Bible this way. Even those of us uh, who know it fairly well and many who pride themselves on studying it the most actually study it in bits and pieces and chunks. Uh, N.T. Wright, who you know I will often reference in a, a video interview called The Whole Sweep of Scripture, says this, the Bible was not primarily written in order to be read in 10 verse chunks. We've cut the Bible down to size. Now, obviously, there are some bits like the Psalms and like some passages, the book of James is written in very short bursts. But most of it, including Paul's letters and certainly the Gospels and certainly great books like Isaiah and I would add Exodus and Genesis and so on, are read in order to be experienced the way you experience a symphony. Imagine, now I'm not musical, so I had to actually, uh, I googled uh, Beethoven number five and I don't know where certain bars are, but I just stopped it kind of abruptly and thought that is weird. But if you're musical, maybe this will go in your mind. Imagine if you were to go to a concert and you got the first 10 bars, bars of Beethoven 5, and then the conductor turned around and said, okay, that's all for this week. Come back the same time next week, and we'll have the next 10 bars. You would think, wait, what? And if somebody said, oh, but if you listen to the whole thing, you'll never remember it all. You think, well, that's not the point. You don't listen to it in order to remember, though you will remember quite a lot of it. You listen to it in order to be swept along in the full flow and sweep and flood of it. Friends, this is the way that scripture is given to us. It is a narrative. It is a book of books with one central theme. That's why uh, the first course in our LM Institute is the gospel story. We want you to get and to understand the single redemptive narrative through scripture. It runs through scripture, it runs through human history, and it runs through your life and my life because the God of Exodus, the God of the biblical story and of our story is a God of promise. He's a God of presence and power. And we're gonna see that in just the first four chapters as God immediately takes center stage and reveals things about himself to us. And this this isn't just for head knowledge. All of us in here, we're struggling in ways. You're struggling with relationships. You're struggling with anxiety. You're struggling with depression. You're struggling with unfulfilled dreams and hopes. You're struggling with the loss of someone or or something that, that you felt God could have intervened and stopped and he didn't and you don't know why. Maybe you're struggling at a large scale with the things that Sayers was talking about with the constant structural changes of institutions and cultures, including the church. And it's into this chaos and confusion and uncertainty that God comes and speaks and reminds us that he is indeed a God of promise and of presence and of power. Let's look at Exodus chapter one, beginning with verse one. I'll read one through 22. Now, I will read at a a decent clip, trying to enunciate as I go, because we've got four chapters to cover. I will not read all of the four chapters, but we'll read a good bit. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. Now, if you're a Bible student, you're already understanding that you can't understand Exodus without Genesis. In fact, Exodus just abruptly starts as a part two, a continuation, really, of of Genesis, who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. If any of you are looking for names for baby boys, there's a bunch. Gad, be my choice. 
Naphtali's not bad. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Jacob was already in Egypt, or Joseph, I'm sorry, was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generations died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. The land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. In other words, they were sort of like glitter. The more of it comes around, the more it seems to spread. It gets all over everything. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, now these Hebrew midwives worked with other Hebrew women and sometimes other Egyptians, they uh, sort of oversaw birthing processes. They weren't the only two midwives whose names were Shifra and Pua, girls' names if you're looking. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, which doesn't sound pleasant, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And I love their answer. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. They basically said, look, they're the sprinters of birth givers. We can't get there in time. Other women take their time and they talk about how hard it is. They just give birth, right? They're special operators when it comes to creating new human lives. They're just too darn fast, is what they say. So, God was kind to the midwives. Why? Because it wasn't that they were too fast. Verse 17 tells us the truth. It's that they feared God with a reverential awe that they did not have for Pharaoh. They're going to obey Pharaoh as far as is possible, but God stands supreme in the midwives' lives. So God was kind to the midwives. The people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Here, we see if you understand the Old Testament, and even if you don't, or if you understand Genesis, and even if you don't, don't worry, we're about to key in here and make the connections. Here we see the God of promise at work. When I say that, what I mean is that you and I are loved by and drawn into a relationship through faith in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins and restoration of intimacy and connection with God. We're drawn into a relationship with a God who makes and keeps his promises. Who makes and keeps his promises. And this is hard for us to hold on to at times. Anybody um, maybe older than 30 or 35, you've had real issues with this at times. And I put, I put the years there because sometimes you just haven't lived long enough yet to have been through a long season of waiting on God to be faithful in a way that he promises he will be. But we're going to see here that this is the God revealed in Exodus, a God who makes and keeps his promises. You see this going back to Genesis 12 where God calls Abram, Abraham. And he tells him, the Lord said to Abram, in Genesis 12 verse one, go from your country, your people, your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. 
I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Egypt is about to find this out. We'll cover this in just a few weeks. And all peoples on earth will be blessed by you. If you turn over to Genesis 15, we see this again, 15, beginning with verse one. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. Why is he telling this? Because things for Abram weren't working out like he thought they would. God had made him a promise. And when, when God makes us a promise, we receive that like little children receive your promises. I promise we'll go camping. They think you mean in the next eight minutes. They think that you had already prepared, everything is packed, you have the extra candy stored, you've picked out a perfect place where the water is warm, and all you're doing is letting them know that it's now time to load up in the car to go camping. That's how we receive the promises of God often. But it wasn't working out for Abram. Verse two, but Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? You can't make a great nation and a great people out of someone who's childless. And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. He's like, you know that guy, he's a joker. You can't do this out of him. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, Abraham, or Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He said, you will have a son, and out of that son, a great nation will come. Now, those of you that know the story know Abraham and Sarah were late in age. Late, not many of you are even there yet. Still possibilities for you. They're in their 90s. He comes back and tells Sarah, she laughs. She's like, that's ridiculous. She's probably thinking, I'm not gonna have a child. I don't wanna have a child this old, right? But God is at work. So if we go back, if we go back to Exodus, we go from one son being born or we have the record of his birth in Genesis chapter 21, to 70, if you look at verse 5 of Exodus 1, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's descendants coming in to Egypt. From one now has come 70 in all entering into Egypt. I was thinking that this will be like the Hinton clan when RJ and Amber are in their 70s or 80s. They will have gone from a handful to a mighty village at that time. Joseph was already there. Two, if you continue to look at this, verse seven, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. We won't get there this morning but if you look at chapter 12, verse 37, as the uh, Israelites come out of Egypt, it says the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There they were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Scholars put an estimate safely at between two and three million uh, Israelites in the population as God is leading them out of slavery in Egypt from one to 70 to between two and three and maybe as much as three and a half million. God is a God who makes and keeps his promises to his people always, eternally. That is his nature. It is not just that he, he, he doesn't break his promises. It's that he can't. It would be incongruent with his character and who he is. And all of these promises of, of descendants and fruitfulness are actually rooted and built on the divine mandate. You see that language 
in verse 7. If you go back to Genesis 1.28, some of you heard the reflection of it there. Genesis 1.28, God gives the mandate to the first man and first woman and tells them that they will, uh, he said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I was texting with Pam last night telling her that I had filled something out um, a few weeks ago that had five genders on it for me to choose from. I so wanted to have fun with that, but I didn't. I just chose male. But our culture says that, and 100 plus now, our God says two, male and female. Verse 28, God blessed them and said, now listen to this language. We just heard it. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. We see it again with regard to Noah after the flood in Genesis 9. Be fruitful, increase in number. Now what's happening hundreds of years later, humankind through God's covenant people are being fruitful and increasing. God makes and keeps his promises. This was at the, uh, the heart of Stephen's message before he's being stoned in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 17, reflecting on Exodus 1, 7, Stephen says, as the time drew near for God to do what? To fulfill his promise to Abraham. The number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Stephen's looking back on this centuries later in a very different time and place and culture. After the coming of Jesus Christ, his life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. After the birth of the church. And he's giving an account to Jewish rulers who will soon stone him. And he's telling them about this God who makes and keeps his promises. And he's saying the multiplication that we saw in Egypt among our ancestors, we saw because of the promises our God made to our forefather Abraham. If you are a child of faith this morning, church, Abraham is your forefather. These are your ancestors. Their God is your God. And so when things aren't working out right, and when you're struggling with doubt and disbelief, and you will, you go back and you say, but Genesis says, and Exodus says, and all of the word of God says. That's why biblically illiterate people will always be a weak and powerless people. A weak and powerless church that's part of why one of our, our values this year and one of, our, um, one of the emphasis that we're holding up before you is, is to, to grow in our commitment to the Word, to go deeper in the Word. That's why many of you are, are reading, many of us together, through Scripture. I hope you're still doing that. If you are, you're over halfway through Genesis now. Some of you have already quit and given up, like 13th year in a row. Don't give up. Just start again. I mean, it's idiot proof. We gave you those little guides. You can turn it to the day. Don't worry about catching up. At the, ex at the expense, I'm just gonna say it. Treat it like most of you would tithing. If you'd forgotten for a while, you're not going to catch up. You're just going to start again. Treat reading the Bible like that. Like if you've got our stuff, that's okay. God's not angry with you. And if you're a listener, if you struggle to read, listen to it. Listen to it on one of a dozen of Bible apps. We need God's word in our hearts and in our minds. Here's the thing, though. No one would have guessed. No one would have guessed. And certainly no one would have chosen for God's good and perfect plan for his children to play out the way it did. No one would have chosen centuries in slavery. No one would have chosen the complete loss of their own identity and culture, which happened We'll see more about that in time. But when you're enslaved in a foreign land and power for centuries, you cannot help but take on the culture and the gods and the sayings and the morals of the people around you. 
Here's how it played out. It played out in suffering and hardship and want and prolonged seasons of waiting. But part of this is a testimony to the honesty and the truthfulness of Scripture. No one would make this up. No one would make this up as a story for the people of God because this is still our story. If you've lived very long, you know that the story of following Jesus is one at times of suffering, of want, of prolonged waiting. The challenge for them and the challenge for us is to trust that God has a plan. Can you do that this morning? To trust that he's good, to trust that he's working and to to cling to that. Now, as, as God's plan is unfolding and his purpose is unfolding, and, and they're realizing God is at work. We're growing in number. Things are happening here. Pharaoh's response to the growth of the Israelite population is threefold. We just read it. He says, hey, we're going to work them to death. And when that doesn't work, he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill all the newborn Israelite babies at birth. And when that doesn't seem to work, he says, you know what? We're just going to throw the Israelite babies in the Nile. This is really dark stuff here, church. This is state-sponsored, politically-backed genocide. It's what Hitler called the final solution in the 30s. The final solution. And what's amazing, if you look back in your Bibles or at the screen maybe, at verse 16, Pharaoh says to the midwives, hey, when you're helping the Hebrew women and, and they're giving birth, if it's a baby boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. That's interesting. Why, why let the girls live? Why not just wipe everybody out? Because the girls were useful. Girls were useful. They could still work. They could cook. They could clean. They could fill harems. They did all kinds of things. They weren't a threat. Were they? They weren't a threat in Pharaoh's eyes. They weren't a threat culturally. To ancient Egypt, the most powerful military empire the world had known to that time. But in God's plan and God's purposes, the women actually were quite a threat, starting with Shifra and Pua and moving right on to the mother of Moses, to the sister of Moses, to Pharaoh's own daughter, which I just giggle at, to Zipporah who helps cover over in an act of bizarre obedience Moses' disobedience as he's getting ready to follow God. Pharaoh would find out in time the girls were very much a threat. I also thought, have you known girls? I got a bunch of them in my house. They're absolutely a threat. At any time, in any way. And any man knows if he wanted, if he had to wake up with someone angry at night standing over him, He'd rather it be a man than a woman. Because the woman had already killed you and then woken you up. He's not just a God of promise, though. We find in these early chapters, he's a God of presence. We're going to move pretty quickly now. Look at verse 2. A man and woman from the tribe of Levi get together. A son comes from them. His name will be Moses. The mom hides him for three months. Hard to hide a child, right? If any of you have read the diary of Anne Frank or maybe uh, Corey Tim Boom's story, you know what it's like to, to try to, to hide among a genocidal. You know at least the intensity from writing. Uh, babies are not quiet. That's sort of why I love Silent Night, but part of me goes, whatever. Um, Jesus absolutely cried as a baby. Verse three, but when she could hide them no longer, she got a papyrus basket. What's funny here, and, and some of you will know this, that the Hebrew word for basket here is the same Hebrew word for ark. It's the same Hebrew word that is used in the story of Noah, of, of one being brought through the waters in God's plan to restore and renew God's good purposes. She placed the child in it and put, the, put it among the reeds the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. You know the story here. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe. She, she pulls back uh, the blanket covering this little, this little basket with pitch and tar on, on, on it so it's sealed and she sees a little Hebrew baby. She sends her uh, female servant down there to get the baby. Uh, she looks on the baby with compassion. The apple has fallen way far from the tree when it comes to Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh. 
in the providence of God as God is present here. Part of the reason that you're not seeing a lot of names here is that the writer of Exodus wants us to know that it's God at work primarily. It's not primarily Moses' mom and dad. We get his names later. It's not primarily Moses' sister. We get her name later. It's not primarily Pharaoh's daughter. We can guess pretty accurately whether it's Tutmos III or Ramses II at possibly what her name would have been. But it's God working here. It's the presence of God near to his people in circumstances, behind the scenes, so that the basket just winds up in the right place with the reeds. And it just happens to be a sympathetic, compassionate daughter of Pharaoh who comes down. And Moses is saved. And even beyond that, Moses' sister, in a very sharp way, says, hey, would you like me to go find a Hebrew woman to nurse him for you? She says, yeah, that'd be great. Just take him back, find uh, a mom to nurse him, and then bring him back to me when you're ready. And so in the providence of God, Moses' mother continues to care for him and raise him, and then he goes on to become royalty in the house of Pharaoh. Now, Moses... Moses has a hard time controlling his temper. Can any, any of you maybe empathize with Moses? You don't have to raise your hands. Just spouses, if you'll turn and look at your husband or wife, that would be appropriate. Children can point. Yes, Moses has a hard time handling, handling his temper. He goes out one day, he sees an Egyptian slave driver whipping and beating one of his Hebrew brothers. He's a man caught between cultures, caught between beliefs, ethnicities, values. He's torn. And on this day, his anger explodes. He kills the Egyptian. He hides him. Then he confronts some of his own Hebrew brothers who are fighting, tells them to knock it off. Verse 14, one of them says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Which is funny because that's exactly what Moses is going to become in about 40 more years. Are you thinking of killing me as you kill the Egyptian? Moses hears this. He's filled with fear. He knows what Pharaoh and what the Egyptian social structure and legal system did to people who killed Egyptians, especially foreigners who killed Egyptians, which Moses still still was a foreigner, though culturally he'd become an Egyptian. So he, he flees. He flees to Midian comes up to a well. There are some uh, young women there, some sisters drawing water. Some male shepherds kind of run them off so they can have primacy there. And Moses runs them off, helps the girls. They go back home. They're like, uh, dad's like, hey, why are you here so fast? Did you not do all your work? No, we did it. It's like when you send your kid up to clean their room, they come down in seven minutes. They're like, I cleaned it good. (laughs) You know, and they're like, you can check it. And the minute you walk in and you open something, they're like, well, I didn't get in there. Or you go like this. They're like, oh, I didn't get under there. Right? They're just like, why are you back so early? They're like, hey, this man came. He helped us. He did this. He's like, hey, bring him, bring him in. Bring him in. Verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Now listen to this. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Now, the text doesn't say that they cried out to God. It says that they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard the cries of his people. Maybe they had long forgotten the God of the covenant, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he had not forgotten them. And maybe, in a sense, in some areas of your life and in some ways, you have pushed God to the side and you've forgotten him. You said, I'm going to give you some recognition on Sundays when it's convenient, right? When the game's not on, when when we don't have soccer, when there's not this tournament or that happening or it's not beautiful, I'm not at the lake and I'm not at the river. But I'll tell you, God hasn't taken his eyes off you. Your gaze may have drifted. Your focus may have shifted. His has not. Verse 24, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, 
with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Little hint here, and if you've been through Elm Institute, you know this. If you've listened here across previous years, you know this. But whenever Scripture says God sees, God hears, God remembers, it doesn't mean that he didn't see before. He wasn't listening and he'd forgotten. It means he's about to what? He's, he's about to act. God's getting ready to act because he's present. He's close to the suffering of his people. And if you're hurting this morning, he is close and near to you. What if we believed? What if we believed in a deeply personal way a profound, a significant way, not in, in a bumper sticker way or a sort of cultural Christian way, but really believed in our guts that God sees us and God hears us. He is attentively listening, affectionately listening to the prayers of his children. And he is acting on our behalf in us and through us and for us when we, when we don't perceive it, when we don't understand it, when we can't see it, for his purposes and glory and our good and our joy. What if we really did believe that? How might your life be different this evening, tomorrow, if you chose and said, God, help me, I do believe this. What sin might you be able to put to death at that point? And say, God sees me, he hears me, he knows me, he really is acting on my behalf for his glory and purposes and my good and my joy. How might your prayer life change? You thought about that? How might prayer change for you if you really deep inside you believed that your God is present with you? delighted in you through Christ, that his gaze towards you is affectionate, not angry. He's a God of promise, of presence, and finally, he's a God of power. We don't have a lot of time left, so I'll just summarize a lot of this. Moses goes out one day. He's a shepherd tending his father-in-law's flocks, and he sees a bush. He sees a bush, and it's on fire, but it's not burning up. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. So he goes closer, he looks, he stares, and all of a sudden, verse two of chapter three tells us that an angel of the Lord appears in the flames from within the bush. At that point, I'm like, I'm out of here. There's a ton of bushes. I'm gonna go find another bush to be around. He says, I'm gonna go over and see what's happening here. And then out of the voice, uh, out of the bush, the voice of God calls to him. And Moses says, here I am. Lord warns him not to come much closer, take his sandals off. He's standing in a holy spot. And the Lord says, again, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. Before just the narrator of Exodus was telling us this, the writer of Exodus. Now the Lord is revealing this to Moses. He's speaking it to Moses. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because they're slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So he's getting ready to what? To act. One of you knew that. Yes, he's getting ready to act. He says, I'm going to go up. I'm going to free them from their Egyptian slave owners and I'm going to take them into a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give them their own space, their own homes, their own land, their place to live and to be free, to multiply the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And then verse 10, he says, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out. You could just see Moses going, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> you said you were about to do all this stuff. I'm out here enjoying a, a bush that's warm. I don't want to go back. <laughs> a little backstory, God. I already went there once, and it turned out bad for me. You may not know this, but I'm a fugitive. They've got a warrant out, homicide. They take that very serious. I sent Stuart a picture of a shirt that I so want, a t-shirt that says, the police never think it's as funny as you do. I, I love that. That is the story of my life with everyone. They never think it's as funny as I do. 
Moses begins to go through this litany of excuses. I mean, haven't you been there? You feel very clearly God calling you to step out in faith in a direction that's in line with Scripture, in line with his, his uh, gifting and his personality in you. You're like, but. <laughs> I would, Lord, I really would. But except these other things aren't working like I thought they would. Verse 14, Moses says, hey, who am I supposed to tell him sent me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. He's self-defining. He's self-sufficient. He's the one who is. Can I just preach for 10 seconds in a culture that's lost its arrogant mind? That God does not receive his name, his identity, his existence, or any other part of his being from anyone or anything else. He is self-existent and self-sustaining. He is, not, uh, he, he is not putting himself before us for our observation to decide whether he lives or not, whether he is or not, whether he's good or not. He simply is. He tells Moses in verse 16, you go assemble the elders of Israel. They're gonna listen to you, verse 18. Then you and the elders are gonna go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. A mighty hand compels him. Moses goes on. And God says, okay, you know, he says, what if they don't listen to me? Verse one of chapter four. What if they say the Lord did not appear to you? You're crazy, Moses. Maybe you had too much peyote out in the desert. Maybe the sun has got you seeing visions that don't exist. So he tells him to throw his staff down. It becomes a snake. He tells him to pick up the snake. It becomes a staff. Some of you be out right there. You're like, I'm turning my two-week notice in. I'm done. I don't handle snakes. He says, put your hand inside your coat. He pulls that out, it's leprous. Put it back in, he pulls that out, it's healed. I tried that with some dry skin on my right hand this week and nothing happened. I thought, well, I've already got the, the leprosy, Lord. I just put it in to see if it'll heal. But the Lord was not with me. <laughs> Moses goes on and on. I've never been eloquent. The Lord says, who gives people mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not me? Finally, Moses just gets blunt in 13. He says, please send someone else. I like that. I have a tendency to be blunt, and it's something I work on consistently. Uh, some of my kids, JC and her friend Callan and Cade, were in my office about 15 minutes before service started. We were talking about some things, and the staff was coming in to pray, and I just said, oh, man, that's awesome. Get out now. The staff's coming in to pray. And uh, JC and Cade, they know the game, but poor Callan, her face is like, Ooh, all righty then. Um, but I'm, I'm more blunt with those I love. Yeah. Moses just runs out of excuses and he just says, I don't want to do it. The Lord's anger burns against him and yet he makes a way there's grace given. So Moses goes, this fugitive who knows how to get out of Egypt knows how to get back in. And he goes back to Egypt. Verse 19 tells us that the Lord told Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. That's gracious on God's part. He could have thought, you know what? Moses is going to be more dependent on me if he's taking this journey thinking they might still be there and still want to kill him. But he just says, relax. Those who knew you, those who were there, those who wanted to kill you, uh, they're not there anymore. The Lord says to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. For some of you, that's stunning, and that causes a real problem. All I'll say about it this morning is that it, it speaks to the sovereign mystery that just exists between the will of God and the will of man. It just exists in the relationship between a divine, sovereign creator and finite creatures. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Moses is on his way, and we'll see this working itself out in coming weeks. Um, Moses hasn't circumcised his son, 
Gershon or hasn't fully circumcised. Old Testament scholars are unclear on that. God comes, God's about to kill Moses. It's a really complex, um, bizarre story. We don't have time to unpack it this morning, except to say that there was disobedience and unfaithfulness in the life of Moses that was uh, covered over quickly by the obedience and faithfulness of Zipporah, and they're allowed to go on. Moses and Aaron, verse 29, bring together all the, Israel, uh, all the elders of Israel once they get to Egypt, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. They believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Our God cares. He is with us. He's a God of power. This is what we see through chapter 3 and chapter 4, and we're going to see a bunch more of it, that God is a God of power. He can turn a stick into a snake and back into a stick. He can in an instant cause leprosy on skin and then heal it through any act he wants to. He can provide someone else to speak on your behalf if he wants. He can speak from a bush that's on fire yet not burned up. He is not subject to the limitations of his natural and physical creation. He's a God of power who's willing and able to act. But can I just say this? I think Moses' struggle, struggle to surrender to God is, is our struggle too. Am, am I the only one? This has is, this is, this is cropped its head up throughout my life. Am I the only one that comes to moments where I think the, to fully surrender myself to God in all ways, at all times, feels scary. It, and it feels restrictive to me. I'm not sure what God may do. So what I want to do is I want to surrender 85% of the way and have him thank me for it. This is Moses' struggle here. He's like, I, I, don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go. I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. Let me ask you this. I want to ask it slowly, and, and I want it to sink in as, as we finish this morning. What would happen in your life this year? What, what might happen in your life in 2024 if you really understood and believed that full surrender to Jesus Christ makes you free? What might happen in your heart, in your relationships, in your marriage, among your friendships, um, in your emotional health, your mental health, if you really did believe that full surrender to Jesus Christ makes you free, sets you free. What would happen right now in your life if you believed that what God was after was your freedom? It's what God's after among his people here. Key question, what if we really believed? What if we really believed that full surrender to God leads to the fullness of freedom, joy, and fulfillment our hearts long for. What if you believe that? Let me ask it one more time. What if you believed? What if you chose right now, empowered by God's Spirit, asking for His help? What if you chose to believe that full surrender to God leads you to the fullness of freedom and joy and fulfillment that your heart longs for? Mark Sayers, in a non-anxious presence, goes on, speaking of gray zones, to say this. A single statement that when I read it, it just wrapped itself around my soul. With God, every moment is seeded with the possibility of rebirth. Every mistake, every loss, every shattered dream, every failed attempt of yours, every inconsistency in your life that you hate as much as everyone else hates, every insecurity, every moment is seated with the possibility of rebirth. And as we have been positioned by the sovereign God of human history to live our lives in a gray zone, and if you're alive and sitting here this morning, this is where we live. You can look back and study other ones in history. In gray zones, God invites us to see challenges and even disasters as opportunities for rebirth, renewal, and revival. 
That's the God we encounter in Exodus. A God of promise and of presence and of power that has not only been at work in his people throughout redemptive history, but is as much at work in his people today, in your life and my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you are at work, whether or not we know it, whether or not we see it. God, whether or not we doubt it, you're at work, and you're at work for your glory and your purposes, and you are at work for our good and our joy. God, I pray this morning that every person in this room, every person watching online or listening, would choose, aided by your grace and your spirit, to really believe in the depths of our souls that full surrender to Jesus Christ really does set us free, really does bring about in time the freedom and joy and fulfillment that our hearts so deeply long for. God, this understanding of your character and your nature is at the root of everything. God, as, even as our offering ushers take their positions and, and we prepare to receive offering this morning in connection cards, God, our willingness to give, to give generously, to give consistently, to acknowledge that all that we have belongs to you, our ability to take chances on our connection card and, and to mark next steps and commitments and be followed up with and try to walk in those by your spirit. All that is rooted in an understanding of who you are, God. That you are God who makes and keeps his promises to his people. That you are a God who is present with us when we don't see it, when we don't feel you, when we're unaware, when we're sleeping. And God, you are a God of power who is able and willing and at work in our lives. God, it's to you that we give all glory and praise. Father, at this time, as we prepare to receive offering, take all that's given, God, receive it. I, I pray that it would be a sweet aroma to you. God, and that you would take it and you would multiply it and you would extend it that we would be good stewards of it, God, to advance the gospel. I pray all this in Jesus' faithful name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.